Dashmak, day three. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Critical Care Practitioner podcast. I am back at home, I'm glad to say. My journey back from Germany wasn't completely uneventful. The heavens absolutely opened above the German city of Berlin yesterday, and I got absolutely soaked. I was like a drowned rat by the time I got to the airport. I was waiting for a taxi, couldn't hail a taxi because everyone else was trying to hail taxis. So I then went on the German underground and ended up going in the wrong direction. So then had to turn around and come back. Then I had to get on a bus and I couldn't find the bus stop. Found the bus stop, got on the bus, got to the airport, went through check-in. There was nowhere to eat, nothing to eat. So I ended up living on chocolate and crisps until I got on the aeroplane. And I have to say, Flybee, thank you, you rescued me. You gave me some food. Okay, it wasn't for free, but it was food. And the flight was absolutely fine. So that was my journey back from Dashmak. And I had an absolutely fabulous time. But before I say too much more about that, because I'm going to sum up my feelings about Dashmak at the end of this podcast, I just want to update you with what actually happened on day three and some of the presentations I went to. I've also got some interviews to put in the middle of this podcast. One is with Dash Foam. Um, I met a gentleman called Gorky and his lovely wife, Annalena, who are trying to, and Aurelia and another lady whose name escapes me, I'm afraid, but um, they were trying to, they are trying to get Dash Foam going. So that's foam in Germany. So I've got an interview with them. Some of it's in German. I wanted it to be in German so that some of our German listeners can actually listen to it as well if they don't if their English isn't so good. So um, it's it's not a long interview, so don't feel you've got to listen to hours of German. You haven't. That was a very useful chat to have. And then I spoke to Jack Iwashina. He's a gentleman I met at the Intensive Care State of the Art Society conference last year. I won't say too much more because obviously you can hear the interview when it comes up. So first of all, let's talk about day three and some of the things that I heard there. So the first part of day three was a group discussion really about the future of medical education. And this was led by Simon Carley, he of St. Emlyn's and uh, EM Manchester. So how do we train the needs of the present and the needs of the future was one thing that came up. Uh, We need to learn how to learn. This was Chris Nixon who said these things. We need to learn how to think more critically. We need to learn how to unlearn things. And also we need to be aware that there's going to be a lot more robotics in the future doing some of the tasks that we have done in the past and therefore we're going to be able to move on to learn other things. Victoria Brazel went on to say that medical schools seem to be innovating at undergraduate level, but unfortunately the postgraduate level doesn't seem to be adapting so well. And I think possibly this is a reflection on the age of those people coming through at undergraduate level and the fact that they have grown up with social media and with the internet and with easy to access computers, whereas some of us dinosaurs aren't so used to these things. They're not so ingrained within us. Another subject that came up was multi-professional training. So should we all learn together a little bit more than we do at present? Should we doctors, nurses, physios, etc. 
learn some of the basic skills together and then move on to some of the more specialist things later on in our training. And I think this is probably something that has been advocated in the past. Um, and I'm not sure necessarily that it's something that's going to happen in the future, but perhaps it's something that we should be aspiring to. I think certainly one of the things we need to be aware of uh, in this particular context is the fact that professional lines are beginning to blur. We have advanced practitioners, we have physicians assistants, physicians associates. So lines are very definitely blurring. Uh, paramedics are moving into the critical care world. Uh, pharmacists are moving into the critical care world so you know lines are definitely blurring and maybe that's another good uh, indication that perhaps we should train together a little bit more. When asked for tangible ideas as to how we can improve learning some of the things that came out was to be humble, to demonstrate well, to demonstrate learning and to demonstrate teaching, to demonstrate again critical thinking, to improve our communication and to improve our team working. And we need to walk our talk as well. Uh, and we need to force interprofessional teams to listen to each other. And we should ask at the end of every day, every, uh, every day of our working lives, we should ask what did we achieve and what didn't we achieve that day? What went well and what didn't go well that day? And how could I improve it? And that's certainly something that I'm hoping I'm going to be able to take into my practice. We then moved on to simulation. So is simulation delivering? And is simulation always used appropriately? And when we talk about simulation, we don't necessarily have to talk about the high fidelity simulation with the very expensive mannequins and the simulation suites equipped with all kinds of wonderful stuff. Simulation can be done pretty much anywhere and simulation can be done without the use of necessarily those kinds of tools. And they talked about a simulation service rather than a simulation center. So a simulation service should be there to help others work through their simulations and do it in the best possible way and make sure that there's a good briefing, there's a good simulation and there's also a good debriefing. And I think these are the kinds of skills that we could learn as clinicians with such a simulation service rather than just a simulation centre. And actually then another interesting point that came out is that those who are educators, most of their job is not necessarily about teaching, but it's about leading the change of things. There was an interesting chat later on that I'll talk about by Ashley Liebig, who led the change of something. And she did this through education, but also through the fact that she inspired others to move forward and change. And great educators should be able to do that. Assessment was talked about as well. Um, is assessment fit for purpose and what's the future? And obviously assessment's important because how do you know you're any good if you're not assessed? But you need to seek out feedback from patients, from other specialists and from your learners as well. And again, this is something that perhaps I'm guilty of that I teach and I don't necessarily seek feedback from my learners. I believe I'm teaching well. They may not believe the same. And it's important that we seek out feedback from those learners in order to ensure that we are teaching appropriately and effectively. Next came Kevin Fong and he talked about how to fail. Now Kevin Fong is very involved in space medicine. He was he presented the Royal Institution Christmas lectures I think it was last Christmas or it could have been the Christmas before I think it was last Christmas um, and he talked about the different types of failure modes that we come into. So there's a fail-safe mode, so if something fails, it's made safe. 
Um, there's a failed deadly mode. And here we gave the example of uh, the nuclear arsenals of various countries, whereby if nuclear weapons are thrown at them, they are set up just to throw all their nuclear weapons back. There's the fail operational mode, and he talked about the shuttle here, where, which has five different processors all coded separately, so that if one fails, another one will be able to take over. But there is also the fail badly mode, and really that's the mode that we're trying to avoid the most. So some of the main points of that particular conversation was that um, forgiveness should be allowed when we fail, one should forgive oneself first and foremost um, and then he talked about graceful degradation as well and graceful degradation is whereby if you've ever had the blue screen of death on your computer if one part of the computer fails then the whole thing just shuts down well that's now being built into things like smartphones and iPads and tablets whereby if one part of the system fails you don't get the blue screen of death anymore it doesn't fail the whole system and this is what we need to try and employ in our fail safe or failure mechanisms that we put into place something that if it fails won't ruin the whole system the whole thing won't fall apart after that we had a lady called jenny rudolph um, who had me and i think she had some of the audience as well in that she started a presentation that was quite frankly awful um, it was death by powerpoint she was talking too quickly she was trying to make too many points um, and in the end, Victoria Brazel came on and stopped her mid-presentation and told her that it was awful. And they ended up having a bit of a, a row on stage. Now, this was a staged row on stage. That quickly became apparent. But the point of this is that we need to master ourselves in difficult conversations. Judgment, being judgmental is normal, but you need to be curious as well as to why that person has made the mistake that they have made. And she mentioned the what the f moment an awful lot, that when we see somebody do something wrong, perhaps our first reaction is what the f And that's normal. And she had us standing up, shouting what the f and clapping three times and she said do that when you come across that because the three claps will stop you and hopefully help you reframe from what the f to what the what's the frame so what's the frame you're trying to realize what their frame is what their perception is the person who's made this mistake that you've witnessed you try and frame that mistake you try and see it as if they're your best friend ever and if you do so hopefully you can help them address what the problem was in a more constructive and a less judgmental way um, so that was an, an interesting one because like I say it started off with us all feeling that she was doing something really badly Next was a quick presentation about POCUS again, good old POCUS, it features a lot in this conference and it was another useful one in that uh, they were using ultrasound to confirm tube placement, ET tube placement when intubating, um, a technique I've not seen before and certainly something that I'll be looking at again and not just whether you've got it in the esophagus or the bronchus but actually where, where you've got it in the bronchus and you're not too far down, you haven't got it in the right main bronchus for example and it looks like once again ultrasound is going to be something that's not too difficult to apply under these circumstances and will prove to be enormously useful. Peter Brindley then made another appearance and this time with Liz Crow and the conversation albeit in a light-hearted way as all these conversations with Peter Brindley have been was about Liz Crow as a social worker and how she has to help 
families um, cope with the situations around them and we need to realize that not all families are functional and if they um, have a very strong religious belief for example then then we need to work with them on that rather than necessarily providing that as a point of conflict but also being realistic at the same time then there was Vera Sistanik um, from the global refugee uh, talking about the global refugee crisis and this really wasn't necessarily specific to us as medics um, but I think it just highlighted a number of points um, that we perhaps all need to be aware of. There are currently 65 million displaced people around the world, 21 million of them are refugees um, and one in 30 of those crossing the Mediterranean actually die and it's numbers like that that make you feel a little bit humble isn't it? And this influx of refugees or migrants or whatever you choose to call them brings up a number of points. For example, a lot of people are concerned that these refugees will increase competition for jobs. And in a way, this is true that the menial jobs will go to the refugees. But what they then found is that those people that were doing the menial jobs then went, then went on to go and get higher paid jobs. And actually, the GDPs of the countries would improve very slightly. And economic protectionism has been proven not to work in the past. Australia back in 1890 was one of the richest countries in the world, if not the richest country in the world. And then it started tariffs and regulations and quotas to how many people could enter the country. And since then it's become the 20th ranked country in the world um, on the same measures. So it obviously shows that this economic protectionism, stopping the migrants from coming into your country, is not necessarily the best way to do it as well. There's increasing xenophobia, there's increasing Islamophobia. And then there's concerns being generated about things like real versus fake refugee or voluntary versus distressed migrants. And she also talked about the relationship with refugees and oil and crises and the fact that ISIS, for example, are funding a lot of what they do through the oil businesses that they've taken over. So an interesting talk about the refugee crisis um, and she got a bit of a she got a standing ovation as well and it was well deserved because it just smack proves itself on things like that that she was surrounded by people who do not want to tolerate this kind of thing going on in their world they do not want to tolerate this Islamophobia this um, racism that seems to be becoming perhaps worse across the country across the world at the moment maybe that's just my point of view Martin Bromley then next made an appearance and for those of you who don't know Martin Bromley Elaine Bromley was his wife 15 years ago who went for an operation for a simple some simple surgery there was big airway problems um, through a lack of awareness unfortunately she died and he has ever since campaigned to have checklists and safety mechanisms put in place to make sure that those things can't happen again and he wanted to talk about how to fail so how to fail and he mentioned three things with how to fail number one is not to say I wouldn't do what they did so when we look at somebody failing, we sit there in judgment and say, so I wouldn't do what they did. And to be honest with you, a lot of the times we probably would do what they did under the same situations and circumstances. What they did didn't make sense at the time from an observer's point of view. But when you were in that situation, it did make sense. Another, another way to fail and this was a quote you put up on the screen was how would you react to a junior questioning your decisions to which an answer was I can't imagine any circumstance where that would be appropriate 
And that's a scary answer to that question, isn't it? A junior should be allowed to question your decisions. And in the Elaine Bromley case, you clearly see a nurse who was um, asking the doctors if they wanted uh, the instruments so that they could do a cricothyroidotomy, um, but she was ignored. Um, so it's things like that. Juniors must be allowed to question decisions and you must, ha you must have what they, he called a confident humility. And thirdly, we must generate a system that isn't set up for us to fail. And an example of this is some of the drug labelling that we get, um, where it's almost pushing us towards failure because two drugs look very, very alike. That labelling needs to be changed so that it's harder to make the mistake than it is to make the mistake. Next was John Gatwood, who was talking about simulation and critical moments in the ICU. And this was a, a video of an acted out scene whereby a family were given bad news of a young lady who had a, had, had a subdural and consequently went on to die. Now, it was sectioned into four particular parts of the conversation. So, um, first of all, the first part was about open disclosure. So, the husband, who was very upset, um, was asking questions as to why this had been missed in the A&E, which was the doctor involved, and the doctor he was speaking to gave him all the details necessary. So, that was about open disclosure. The next part of the conversation was the end-of-life conversation, so the fact that um, it had to be passed on to the family that the patient was actually dying. And then the third part of the conversation was about donation and uh, getting permission to use the organs. Um, so they were saying that when they simulate this kind of thing, um, they, do it in a th they have a three-stage briefing process. So the actors will brief, uh, debrief the person involved in the simulation, they'll debrief in character, then the actors will debrief out of character, and then you get a video debriefing. And he was saying that the learners find it very useful to have the actors debriefing both as uh, in character and out of character as well. And several tips for this really was obviously to have a, a good plan, to have a nice structure, but to be flexible with that structure when you are passing on bad news or when you are briefing or debriefing. And to have some focused content as well. Ask them what they want to talk about. Safety and honesty are obviously both important. And one of the things that stuck in my mind is that silence is golden. When you're passing on some information that somebody is not going to want to hear or not enjoy hearing, that sometimes silence is golden. So um, unfortunately, your wife is going to die and then have a silence. Don't fill that silence with more and more words and not give the patient or the person who's being debriefed, if you're giving them bad news, chance to come back with something. This was then followed by a presentation about not all brains are the same. Now I have to say, unfortunately, this one lost me a little bit. Um, it was too technical, it was delivered too fast, the slides were all too busy, um, and I don't really wanna say too much more about that one. It's, it's one of the presentations that I don't think necessarily um, applied the principles of smack um, to its best ability. Um, the, the gentleman presenting was clearly very knowledgeable, but unfortunately, um, I found myself switching off a little bit on that one. We were followed by Margaret Herridge, um, and this was about um, Nietzsche, and 
she started with the comment that that which doesn't kill us makes us stronger. I've always had a problem with this phrase. I don't like this phrase at all, to be honest with you. I think some things that don't kill you um, don't make you stronger at all. In fact, quite the opposite, to be honest with you. But this really was a conversation about some of the things that patients will suffer from both during their ITU stay and post ITU. And obviously we touched on ICU acquired disability uh, and weakness, shoulders and the hips, for example, um, some brain dysfunction that the patients will end up going home with, with a cognitive dysfunction um, and mild Alzheimer de dementia-like um, symptoms and also depression. 17 to 43% of them will um, suffer with depression and post-traumatic stress disorder. They may suffer with some lung dysfunction, some tracheal st stenosis, dis disfiguring scars, heal or stroke occipital ulcers, um, contractures of the knees and hips, um, they may go home with ileostomies, and the families also suffer with depression and PTSD. And then she went on to talk about post-traumatic growth. Now I was a little bit unclear on here whether she was saying that post-traumatic growth was a positive thing or a negative thing, but she was saying that things like perception of self will change. Uh, there'll be a change in the experience of relationships and a change in one's life philosophy. And I can imagine very much so that is the case, that it's one of the things that people say, isn't it, when they go through major trauma like this, that their perception, that, that they important things became important and less important things took a back seat. And I can understand how that would happen. And again, that was a very good presentation. I don't feel I'm necessarily doing justice to all of these via this podcast, but I'm hoping I'm giving you a taste of some of the things that happened I'll go on and talk more about smack at the end. The next talk was another one about ultrasound. And no, I didn't get sick of hearing about ultrasound. You perhaps think I would. It did feature quite a lot in this. This was by a gentleman who was uh, skilled in ultrasound and was practiced quite a lot and was practicing on his son and discovered a retroperitoneal tumor in his son that then went on and needed surgery. Um, and it ended up being benign. Uh, and the chap got quite emotional when he said he had to leave him for surgery. And I can, I can understand that having two boys of my own, I can understand how uh, emotional that would make you feel but he talked about incidentalomas that basically one can find these things if one looks hard enough and the point of focused ultrasound is that it should remain focused um, because 40% of scans will have incidental findings and only 1% of those uh, will be significant so try and remain focused when doing the ultrasound we then had Peter Brindley again but this time he was being interrogated by Ian Beardsall and he was talking about burnout and interestingly Peter Brindley was very honest about his burnout. Um, he um, found himself very depressed at one point, uh, needed some time out um, and you know it, it, was a, it was a certain amount of honesty from Peter about that which was good to hear. Next was Jack Iwashina, or Iwashina, I beg your pardon, Jack. And I'm not going to sum up his talk here. I'm going to let you hear the interview that I had with him whilst we were there. So hi there, everybody. Um, as promised, I've got Jack Iwashina with you, with me. Um, I had terrible problems pronouncing Jack's name at the Intensive Care Society conference, and he put me right. 
by Washina. Is that right, Jack? It was perfectly done, sir. Excellent. So Jack is a physician over in America, and at the critical care conference, in the intensive care conference last year, he talked about persistent critical illness, and he's going to do the same tomorrow here at the uh, DASMAC conference. But I think, first and foremost, we need to talk about what happened this morning in the main arena, where we the discussion was about tribes. Now, I got from that an awful lot, and one of the things I got from that is that tribes seem to be still a major part of our processes in the medical world and as a consequence we don't necessarily work as well as we should. Jack, what did you get mainly from that discussion? So I heard the same component about the tribes be important, but I don't think I heard it as negatively as you did. I heard a lot about trying to manage that balance between the identity reserves and sort of the ease of communication of sort of an in-group, while also thinking about being conscious about difference and how people relate to each other. Um, I also heard, I thought, the very clever reforming that when people are stressed, they want to find and us and a them and that that actually offers a tremendous opportunity to not say I'm the doctor and you're the something else but we're the medical team and that's the freaking disease and how do we reframe ourselves use that innate tribalism in high stress periods to build a cross potential in groups against the common enemy of whatever is trying to hurt our patients so what did you gather from that conversation because I heard lots of ways of trying to stop this tribalism from occurring what did you hear about that because one of the tweets I put out it's all very well talking the talk but we do need to walk the walk as well and I've been to many meetings where we've talked about tribalism and yet tribalism doesn't seem to change we call it silo working over over in the UK as well as I'm sure you do in America how do we address these issues and what came out of that conversation in there do you think that might help us do that so you know to my mind a lot of these metaphors come back to how we think about diversity right to what extent are we thinking about a melting pot or to what extent are we thinking about a mosaic, right? And what I heard there from several people was a pretty strong defense of mosaicism, right? A belief that you can have individual pieces that are each who they are and their own expertise as long as they articulate well together. I particularly, uh, Jesse Spur was freaking amazing. Um, and the parts he was talking about meaningful co-training, not training with a few other people on the outside seemed really important, right? So let's go through and actually think about how we enact these in advance of our moments so that those become easy to fall back on defaults, I found very compelling. Do you think though, how do we make that feasible? Because nurses train separately, doctors train separately, physios train separately. How do we make sure that we train as a group but yet train on the specialties that we need to be aware of as well and to the depth that we all need to train at? Um, so there is nothing as fully under our control in clinical work as how we train, right? Everything else has another payer or another stakeholder or a freaking patient and their, their inborn pathology that we have to deal with. How we train is entirely our choice. So choose differently. Okay. We'll move on from that because I do want to talk to you about the persistent critical illness as well. I'm sure it is. Um, persistent critical illness, I've spoken to Carol Hodgson about this, I've spoken to Louise Rose about this, both of whom were at the Intensive Care Society conference last year. 
It seems to be um, this persistent critical illness or this um, uh, chronic critical illness seems to be something that we only just started talking about or I only just started hearing about it. So I think the notion of chronic critical illness um, has clearly been in the literature for at least 20 years and has probably been in there for as long as we've had iron lungs, right? When you go back to polio, there were those people who we didn't make better but didn't die. What we've been trying to do with persistent critical illness is move things forward a little bit, right? So chronic critical illness, Ronaldo talks about chronic is three months. You can argue about where that definition is, but it's when you're in that permanent malaise state, whereas persistent critical illness, what we're trying to do is ask, how do people transition from that period of acuteness where they come in, we have an initial diagnosis, we've got an Apache score, we've got the differential and we're running that. What's, how do they go from there to stuck? And Liz Villianti, one of the uh, fellows I've been working with, has really been brilliant to me about articulating that that's the question we're asking, is there's a beginning and there's that kind of malaise at the end and there's a middle and we haven't studied that middle at all. And persistent critical illness has been this multinational effort to unpack that middle and understand what that transitioning and that becoming or not looks like. And what conclusions are we coming to? Are we, re I mean, presumably not reaching conclusions yet, but what pathway is that taking us down as far as research is concerned and how can we better treat our patients to A, identify the ones that are going that way and B, treat the causes either earlier in their pathway or later in their pathway. So it's only been a year and a half we've been working on this. Get on with it. Yeah, so uh, as soon as you've solved COPD and you can explain to me COPD, I promise that I will have persistent critical illness for that. Um, I mean, I think what we're, uh, first thing we're finding is it's a thing, right? So it might have been just a clever idea Ronaldo came up with. Ronaldo Belomo comes up with a lot of clever ideas. Most of them are right, but this might have been the odd one. Um, so the first is it looks like in the US, in Australia, in New Zealand, in Scotland, in England, very similar patterns are showing up around the world, which suggests that there's a realness to it. The second thing is Liz has done some great work that will uh, premiere tomorrow showing that for a lot, for more people than not, this cascading new problems is actually the story of their ICU care, as opposed to the failure to wean metaphor of like they come in and we just, the COPD, right? They come in tight and we just never get them off. That instead these things going on is a very common way, is a real thing that we need to think about. How people navigate through that path and how we derail them, that's the next five years. Okay, so we need to understand what causes them to go down that pathway, then we can start appreciating what we can do as clinicians, as nurses, as PTs, to help stop them moving down that pathway. Is that what I'm, what I'm hearing you say? Mostly, but I think the other thing we can do now, and I'll talk about this a little bit tomorrow, so feel free to turn in, um, is the uh, being worried about anchoring, right? So that I can't tell you how many times I hear a med student tell me, this is Mr. Jones, who's a 74-year-old who came in with alcohol and 14 days ago and at 14 days in no one cares what his presenting complaint is and I worry we think of the septic patient in bed 10 long after that's initially gone on and part of what Liz's work and Ronaldo and Carol's work in doing in persistent critical illness is having us think about how we take each day as a new day in the ICU and accept certain continuities but not assume that day five is going to be just like day one so we're almost giving them a freshening their diagnosis so that we can treat them in a different way. Rather than treat what they came in with, we treat them with
with what they are now and some of which we as clinicians may have been responsible for in the way that we treated them. That's the bottom going for the next session. So I'm going to let Jack disappear and I'm going to go into the next session as well. Thank you very much, Jack. And I look forward to tomorrow. Okay. So the final session I attended was by a lady from Uganda. And this was about trending towards togetherness. And she was very aware that emergency medicine was only just growing in Africa now however it is growing and it is growing at a pace and there was quotes from several people who told us how it was growing and how well it was growing and this was probably the inspirational um, talk of the whole conference she ended up by talking about something called Ubuntu and Ubuntu is the universal bond of sharing that connects all humanity. And this really, for me, sums up smack. It's the universal bond of sharing that connects all of us in the smack community. And this is where really I want to talk about smack because there have been criticisms of smack. And I think one of the criticisms is that it's too expensive. And I do understand that. I was lucky enough to be given a media pass, so I actually didn't have to pay for a ticket. I worked hard for it. I worked very hard. Those of you that saw me on the live streaming, um, if you haven't seen that, just go to my Periscope channel or the Facebook channel or to my YouTube channel. I did work hard for it, um, but it is an expensive conference, and I do understand that. However... I do believe that it's a conference worth going to. It's not a conference to go to if you want lots of medical facts and figures. It's not a conference to go to if you necessarily want everything state-of-the-art and completely up-to-date as it's happened to be presented with all the latest research. It's not that kind of conference. It is, however, a conference full of people who want to inspire others to do better, to innovate to find new ways of working and to network with others from around the globe to ensure that we can all become not just better medical practitioners but better people. Now if you want to pay a lot of money to do that then that's fabulous, that's where you need to be. There is a lot of criticism as well that um, there's not much substance. Um, it seems to be um, presentation over substance. Again, I do understand that. However, if you go with the right attitude and go with the thought that you're there to be inspired and you're not necessarily going to have your head filled with lots of medical facts and figures. And to be quite honest with you, I go to a lot of conferences now and some of those medical facts and figures are just boring and I don't absorb them and I've got no chance of absorbing them. I want somebody to point me in the right, right direction. And a phrase I often use for this is I want somebody to light the fire and then it's up to me to fill the pail. And I, I live by that, and I think Smack lives by that as well. There were some inspirational, fabulous people there. 
Before I go, I just want to also put in the interview that I had with Dash Foam. I uh, online asked if anybody would help me do some of the uh, podcasting and a gentleman called Gorky, who is an anaesthetist over in Germany, was quite keen to help me. Unfortunately, it didn't work out that way because of time constraints, etc. But I did get a chat with them and this is the bit where some of it's in German. So bear with it. The German doesn't go on forever and I think it gives you some idea of what's happening to Foam not just around um, your part of the world, not just around the English-speaking part of the world, but the fact that it's becoming ever-present and now is moving to the non-English-speaking parts of the world. There were Germans there, there were Dutch there, there were Finns there, there were Swedes there. It is an international movement, um, and I think this just proves it. So I will play this interview for you. Um, skip through it if you don't want to hear the German parts. If you are German, then listen to it because it's in German as well. Um, and I hope you find this interesting. Okay, welcome back. I've been joined by some reluctant Germans, I think. They're all gathered this side of the screen, but they want to come talk to me about Das Foam. So I'm not going to give them any chance to back out. They need to walk around the other side and look like they want to be part of this. So I'm going to speak to Gorky first. Yes. Hang on, let me cut in there. Oh, you're, yeah. you're too tall. Yeah. You need to crouch. This is made for short people. So squeeze in, squeeze in, squeeze in, squeeze in. Squeeze around, squeeze around. Yeah. Excellent. Right, I'm in your way now. Yes. So, Gorky, tell me who you are, why you're here, and why I'm talking to you. Okay. I'm Gorky from Berlin. I'm uh, an ethicist working here in Berlin, and um, I'm here on this dust mac because uh, I like the foam idea, and it's um, it's a pleasure. It's, it's so so incredible, great to to connect with others and to share knowledge with others. Okay. Now I want you to say that in German. Also. Mein Name ist Gorki, ich bin Anästhesist hier aus Berlin und ich bin hier beim Smack ähm, einfach, weil ich die Idee des Smacks ähm, und der Foam-Made, also der Free Open Access Medical Education sehr, sehr mag, unterstütze. Und das andere, was noch ist, was ich gerade auf Englisch nicht gesagt habe, was ich gleich noch machen werde, ist, wir haben gestern, es gibt eine, eine Website, die heißt dasform.org und wir haben gestern die, ähm, den Verein dafür gegründet und ähm, wir sind einige davon here the um, diesen Verein vertreten. Obviously yeah. I understood everything you said there. Yeah, so but are uh, you talk about the website, you talk yes. about the FOMEC committee I need that you're to, to do it now in English. Right. You need to stop and I'm gonna ask this yeah. lady about uh, what's your name, sorry? Uh, it's Aurelia. It's pretty hard to pronounce in English because it's Italian. Uh, you were the lady on the stage yesterday. I was yes. Aurelia, yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. So Aurelia what happened last night at your meeting? What what's going to happen for foam in Germany? Um, basically, there was no real foam in Germany, and when Dasmeg Dub was, or when Smeg Dublin was finished, and we were looking at Dasmeg, we realized that there is no foam community in German for German speakers. Were you at the Dublin conference then? No, I wasn't, sadly, um, but some of us were, and uh, we decided we needed to change that. We need to make all that content available in German because there's so many resources that many Germans just don't know or. Or do not use because of the language barrier, right? Okay, stop. Say all that in German for me. 
Ich bin äh, Aurelia und wir haben gestern Abend im Rahmen von Das Smack in Deutschland den Verein zur ersten deutschsprachigen Foam-Website ähm, gegründet oder zumindest zu der, die sich zur Aufgabe gemacht hat, auch englischsprachigen, ja, englischsprachigen äh, Foam-Content auf Deutsch zugänglich zu machen. So dass wir mit Smack in Deutschland, was ja eine einmalige Gelegenheit ist, ähm, anfangen wollen, diese Bewegung in Deutschland überhaupt erstmal bekannt zu machen. Yes, I am. Um, and you are an anesthetist? No, actually I'm not an anesthetist. Um, I did some training in emergency medicine in the UK and here. So, so you're in emergency medicine? Well, uh, there is no emergency medicine specialty in, in Germany. Oh, really? Really, and there isn't. And so who looks after emergency medicine in Germany then? Uh, on the shop floor. Every, everybody, should I say so? Well, anesthetists, the physicians, surgeons, neurologists, whoever would like to join the party. Okay. So, meeting last night, I know why, I know your plans, but how are you going to put them into, how are you going to get this thing to work? What are you planning to do? I think we should spread the idea first and make sure that everybody understands the implications of this and why we should improve. I mean, it's, finally, it's in the interest of patients and their safety we are very concerned about. So we have to improve and we have to learn from other countries and that's why we are here. Say that in German, ask my question as well in German, so Zunächst einmal denken wir, dass wir, um die Idee des Foam-Made hier in Deutschland durchzusetzen, uns weiter öffnen müssen für Mitsprechende, für Leute, die interessiert sind, die, den Gedanken der Notfallmedizin und Akutmedizin hier in Deutschland zu verbreiten. Und wir sind eigentlich alle der Hoffnung, dass wir dadurch die Sicherheit der Patienten im Krankenhaus, die Versorgung unserer Patienten draußen in der Notfall, präklinischen Notfallmedizin verbessern können. Thank you very much. Annalena, I'm sorry, I forgot your name. Annalena, Annalena is related to this gentleman, I believe. So, Annalena and Gorky are married. You have children? Yeah, three. Three children, three children, and they can be at a conference. Wow, that's an achievement. So, Annalena. <laughs> How far do you see this process going? Is this something that you think can be a German-wide thing or is it just going to be local to start with and see where you go from there? No, I actually think this is not going to be just local because we already have some people involved from other cities as well and I think as we are all ready for it and I think I can really say that I'm sure it will spread very quickly. The gong is gone. It's time to go. Thank you, guys. Thank you I will send you the link. Yeah. You can do what you like with it. So, and I'll make it clear that it's in German as well, so anyone who's German can watch it as well. We didn't get your last bit in German, unfortunately, but I think we got most of it, didn't we? Okay. Thank you very much. No, my pleasure. Come back and see me again as well. Yes, sure. All right. Have fun.
Okay, so the word is spreading. Um, we got the Germans involved, which is fabulous. Um, we may be leaving Europe, but FOMED is most definitely not leaving Europe. Brexit, bah, who cares about Brexit? Um, so that's me done. The afternoon session is about to start. Um, so I'm hoping that I'll be able to talk to you again in an hour or two about what's happened in the afternoon. Thank you very much. So there you go. Had a really, really, really fabulous time at the SMAC conference. I worked really hard. I didn't see much of Berlin. I didn't see the wall and I didn't see Checkpoint Charlie, which I promised myself I would. I lugged a lot of heavy equipment around. I got very wet on the way home. These are all the memories I'll have. But I'll also remember the atmosphere, the buzz, the warm weather on the first two days. And I need to say a big thank you to Oliflower, Chris Nixon and Roger Harris who invited me back in December and I'm hoping I'll be able to make some more. The next one's in Sydney in 2019, February of 2019. They're going to have a bit of a break between this and the next one, mainly so they can have it in the summer of uh, the Southern Hemisphere. So I may not be there. I hope I will be. I may not be. If you're thinking of going to SMAC, and you don't want lots of facts and figures, but you want to be inspired amongst a group of wonderful individuals, then I can't recommend it highly enough. I hope you found this useful. Get in touch with me if you want to. You know where I am, and thanks for listening. You've been listening to Critical Care Practitioner. If you would like to comment on any of today's topics, find us at criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk, tweet us at ccpractitioner, find us at facebook.com, Critical Care Practitioner or search Critical Care Practitioner on iTunes. <laughs>